0: Hi, everyone. In today's episode, Natalie Fodiatis and I will speak with Dr. Payne of Episode 4 fame and Dr. Lauren Osborne about the interplay between hormones and mood disorders. If you or someone you love has or did have or will have menstrual cycles, this is really useful stuff. We hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the podcast against disease. I am your host, Cody Weston.
1: And I'm Natalie Fodiatis.
0: And we are here today with Dr. Jennifer Payne and with her, the other director of the Women's Mood Disorders Center, uh, Dr. Lauren Osborne, to talk about critical periods in hormone change and how they relate to mood disorders in women. So, why is this an important topic? Why should people outside of healthcare care about the interaction between hormone changes and mood disorders?
2: Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that, particularly in women, times of hormonal change can influence a woman's mood, and if she has an underlying mood disorder, it can influence the course of that illness. Secondly, from a scientific perspective, I study times of hormonal change because I think we're going to be able to more easily figure out the biology underlying mood changes and at times of hormonal change, and that will ultimately help us understand what the biology is underlying mood disorders in general.
0: Okay, interesting. Yeah, as you were saying, the pattern of mood disorder onset in some of these is predictable, you said?
2: You know, we can't predict the onset of mood disorders in most people, but we know that times of hormonal fluctuation increase the odds of a mood disorder, either onset or recurrence. So, for instance, the postpartum time period has an elevated risk for Major depression as well as bipolar disorder. And so, if you take, say, 100 women who are pregnant who have pre existing mood disorders, about 40 to 50 of them will get sick in the immediate postpartum time period. If you took 100 men and watched them for a year, none of them might get ill. Hmm. Um, so, it's, it's a little bit of a natural experiment in terms of trying to work out the underlying biology.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. It's like knowing where to point your telescope or something. If you're trying to find a rare event it's going to take you a lot longer to draw conclusions if you're waiting around just for the thing to happen.
1: Correct. Dr. Osborne could you maybe give our listeners a general overview of how sex hormones work and how that can affect the occurrence of these mood disorders that Dr. Payne just highlighted for us?
3: Absolutely. So one of the things that helps us to understand what a role sex hormones might have in mood disorders in women is if we just look at the pattern of when women's rate of depression increases above that of men. And it's right at menarche, at the time when a woman, when a girl gets her period, that's the point at which women's rate skyrockets above that of men. So boys and girls before puberty have equal rates after puberty, we know that women's rate is twice twice that of men up until the time where you get past menopause and then it goes down again. And so the hormones that we're talking about, the two main hormones we're talking about are estrogen and progesterone. And those are the hormones that fluctuate across the menstrual cycle. So across the menstrual cycle, remember that when, when someone gets her period, we call that the first day of the menstrual cycle. And the first half of your period is called the follicular phase. And that's the half during which The body is supposed to be maturing a follicle so that an egg can be fertilized, so that's the first two weeks of a woman's menstrual cycle. And during that period, estrogen is on the rise. Then when you get to the middle of the cycle and that egg is released so that it's ready to be fertilized if a pregnancy is going to happen, at that point there's a surge of estrogen and then in the second half of the cycle there's a lot of fluctuation. So estrogen goes up and then down, progesterone rises rapidly and then also comes down. And it's that period, that second half of the cycle, the last two weeks, which we call the luteal phase, where there's a lot of fluctuation in both estrogen and particularly progesterone. And that's the time period in which women who have mood symptoms that are related to the menstrual cycle will have those symptoms.
0: Okay. These changes are happening in all women and only some women are having these uh, illnesses. Is that because their levels uh, of hormones are abnormal? Do they have too much estrogen or progesterone? What's going on exactly?
3: That's such a good question, and I think it's the question that every patient who comes into our office will ask. Women who have those symptoms, it's natural for them to believe that my hormone levels must be different from other women's hormone levels. But actually, that's not the case. There have been a number of research studies, many, many research studies, that have shown that the levels of hormones are exactly the same in women who have these symptoms and women who don't. So we don't have a difference in level. What we have is a difference in sensitivity. So some women are vulnerable to those fluctuations in level, and other women aren't. And we don't know exactly what the reason for that is. It involves a bunch of other different systems, the serotonin system, perhaps the uh, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is involved in a lot of other hormones in the body, perhaps the immune system. So the interaction with all of those symptoms, systems, and a woman's genetics may indicate why she's vulnerable. So it's vulnerability not level.
0: Okay. So, it's the same signal, but different response.
2: Exactly. Right. And the different responses in the brain, ultimately. There are differences in the brains of people who have major depression or bipolar disorder and in women who are sensitive to times of hormonal change. Those normal hormonal changes are triggering events in the brain that lead to what we call depression
1: so since we've established that it's not a hormonal imbalance, it's just normal fluctuations in hormones that happens in all women, how would you define whether a woman's experience or sensitivity is greater than normal or abnormal? Like, what basically is the, the criteria for a woman who has trouble with this?
2: That is a great question. Really, you can apply that question to every area of, of psychiatry. I always tell people, you know, almost everybody's had a low mood. Everybody's had a high mood. People get anxious. Some people have had obsessive thoughts. And the real thing that separates out psychiatric illness from normal human experience is functional impairment. So I would say a majority of women have some premenstrual mood symptoms, some irritability, some lability, maybe some sadness, but it doesn't get in their way. It doesn't impair their functioning. When someone has something called premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is about five percent of the population, they have functional impairment. They're not able to go to work. They consistently have arguments with their, with their significant others. They can't get out of bed. It's a, it's a significant functional impairment. And that is really what divides psychiatric illness from normal experience in general.
0: That leads into one of the next questions I wanted to discuss. So we talked about PMS, which is a normal phenomenon. That's not something that all women experience, is it? Or is it most? S-
3: studies show about anywhere from 30 to 80% of women will experience some symptoms
0: okay. of PMS. Gotcha. So not quite universal. So that is a normal variant, we'll say, and then PMDD, which is a specific abnormal worsening to the point where it's disrupting normal function. How can you tell these things apart from somebody who has depression that is worsening during the menstrual cycle?
3: That's something that we encounter frequently. I'd say we have a lot of patients who come into our office who think they have PMDD because they notice these symptoms in the premenstrual period, but without looking carefully at the rest of the month, you can't tell whether those symptoms are confined to the premenstrual period. So the real way to tell is to do what we call prospective charting of your mood. So rather than asking the woman to remember back what was your mood like last cycle, we like to collect data about the mood over the period of a couple of menstrual cycles going forward. So you can give a woman a mood tracker, and it doesn't have to be a doctor doing this. A lot of women will have an app on their phone to track their period, and most of those have some kind of mood tracker. But to track your symptoms prospectively across the course of the cycle, you'll be able to tell, or your doctor will be able to tell, whether your symptoms are really confined to that luteal phase, those last two weeks of the cycle, Or whether you have symptoms across the month. If you have symptoms across the month, then what you probably have is a premenstrual exacerbation of another mood disorder, either major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And that's really clinically important because if
2: a woman has an underlying mood disorder that's undertreated or not treated at all, you don't want to treat her for premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which can include intermittent treatments or hormonal treatments because it won't address the underlying mood disorder. I would say most patients who come in complaining of PMDD actually have an undertreated or an untreated mood disorder. Exactly.
3: Treating them for PMDD, if what they really have is another mood disorder, not only will that not help the other mood disorder, but we even have some evidence that treatments that work for PMDD flat out do not work for the premenstrual exacerbation of an existing mood disorder. And there's pretty good evidence for that. So it's really important to tease that apart and figure out what the woman has. The other thing I would say Mm -hmm. is that when you treat
2: a woman for an underlying mood disorder, a lot of times the premenstrual mood symptoms disappear or are much more manageable and, and are not the focus of treatment anymore. So getting an untreated mood disorder under control really helps women. So it's important to really understand that differential diagnosis and to make a clinical diagnosis before you start treatment.
1: Okay, great. And could you tell us how treatments differ between PMDD and premenstrual exacerbation?
2: Sure. So when a woman has premenstrual exacerbation, you want to treat the underlying mood disorder. So you want to make a diagnosis of, is this major depression? Is this bipolar disorder? And then you first start treating them like you would any other woman or man with major depression or bipolar disorder. So in bipolar disorder, you would be giving mood stabilizers. In major depression, you would be treating with antidepressants. And then your goal is to get the mood disorder under good control and then see if their premenstrual symptoms evaporate or if you need to add on treatment for premenstrual exacerbation.
3: Yeah. And in in addition, we know that when we're treating uh, PMDD, you can use antidepressants at relatively low doses and you have a choice of administering them every day throughout the month or just administering them During the luteal phase, those last two weeks, or even just at the time when symptoms begin, so if a woman knows her symptoms begin five days before her period, you can start the antidepressant then, whereas for major depressive disorder, you really want to treat the whole month. The other important distinction is that there's a lot of good evidence that for women who truly have PMDD, oral contraceptive pills can really be a helpful treatment, Um, and for many women, if they need contraception, that's a great treatment to choose. But for women who have premenstrual exacerbation, we don't have evidence that the oral contraceptive pill will help their premenstrual symptoms. Now, it may. It may just be that we don't have evidence yet, but right now, the evidence is not strong that it helps women with PME.
0: You mentioned that birth control pills can play a role in the management of PMDD. Are there other reasons that the existence of these illnesses might guide somebody's choice of birth control method?
2: Yes, so some women are actually very sensitive to hormonal treatments, even if they are steady state and not causing hormonal fluctuations. We've had a number of women who have underlying mood disorders who have destabilized in the setting of the Marina IUD, which in theory does not secrete systemic hormones, but it's very clear that it can destabilize some women. So if a woman has a history of being sensitive to A times of hormonal change or to hormonal contraception we actually generally recommend non-hormonal contraception like the copper IUD is an option so you want to take a good history
3: as to whether they may or may not be sensitive mm-hmm. and it's important also to say that for uh, women who do have PMDD the only type of contraception for which we have evidence that it will help the mood mm-hmm. symptoms would be a combined oral contraceptive pill. So we don't think that things like the Mirena IUD or, or any other progesterone-only contraceptive, which applies to the Mirena, to certain pills, to Depo-Provera, there's no evidence that that would help mood in women with PMDD. And anecdotally, at least, as Dr. Payne said, we have some evidence that for some women, they're actually quite sensitive to it.
1: You mentioned earlier that when women first get their periods, their risk of developing depression doubles. Are there other periods in life in which women are particularly at risk for developing other types of mental illness? Earlier you had mentioned Dr. Payne that functional impairment is really how you can tell what's normal and what's not.
2: Sure, so First of all, there are clear other periods of risk having to do with hormonal fluctuations. So the postpartum time period increases the risk of a major depressive episode very clearly or a relapse with bipolar disorder. Mm The perimenopausal time is also a time when hormones start to fluctuate kind of in a non-predictable pattern and many women will develop major depression in that setting as well. So we know that all times of hormonal change for women are risky periods. In terms of your question for functional impairment, I think it's usually pretty obvious when someone is ill, they don't function the way that they would normally, and there's different levels of functioning. Someone who's not working a full-time job and running a full-time family, might slip under the radar, but if you really talk to them and their family members, they are not functioning the way they would normally. They also often experience what we call anhedonia, so they're not enjoying things or feeling their emotions the way they would normally. So they may intellectually think, oh, I love my husband, I love my kids, but I just don't feel it the way I would normally. And things that they would normally enjoy, they're not enjoying. So there's, there's a clear change from who they are at baseline um, and it affects their functioning and their emotionality.
3: And one of the ways that I often talk to women about this to try to get a sense of that level of impairment is by asking them specific questions about things that may be occurring that maybe they haven't noticed. So a woman might say to me, oh, the symptoms aren't that bad, and I'll say, well are you getting in disagreements with people at work? Have you been demoted or have you been fired? Or for a woman who isn't working outside the home, I might say, do you find you've been more irritable with your children? Have you been getting in fights with your husband? So you can bring up specific examples that apply to their lives that can help you see the level of functional impairment, even if they don't see it.
0: Sort of relating to that question, I've been thinking a little bit about how this ties into some of the negative stereotypes about women's mood fluctuations, that women are moody, et cetera. And as the man at the table, how would you guys recommend a male approach this if they're concerned about somebody in their lives without coming in in such a way that it's just like, I don't know, you're too moody, what's going on, you better go to the doctor. I could definitely see that coming off the wrong way.
1: To add on to that question as well, it seems that since since women are kind of stereotypically moody anyways, then an actual problem could potentially be minimized by, you know, well, women are just, all women are crazy or something along those lines. So for women who maybe feel that the men in their lives perhaps aren't necessarily taking them seriously, what are kind of some conversations that they could have to bring them along and say like look this this is normal and these are some things that are not normal and i would like you to be understanding of that.
3: Yeah, i think that's that's a really good question and i think that again the way to answer it is keeping in mind that concept of functional impairment and building that into the conversation. So if you're a man and you're concerned that your partner is really having some substantial mood fluctuation in that premenstrual period. The first thing is, wait to talk about it until (laughs) she's not in that period. But second of all, to talk about it by bringing it up and saying, I understand that a lot of women have mood symptoms before their periods, but it seems to me that for the last couple of months, we've really been struggling in that period. We've been getting in a lot of arguments. So bringing in that we, right? And I'm wondering if there's something more going on with you here. And I think that's said in a sort of loving and supportive way, rather than than an accusatory way. Dr. Payne, would you agree? That was exactly what I was going to say. (laughs) You know, I
2: think you want to go at it from a supportive, we're in this together. I'm concerned about you. Um, Perspective and not in a blaming, argumentative, and dismissive way. There's nothing worse than talking to a partner who's being dismissive of what you're going through, but instead empathizing and emphasizing that it's a we're in this together and I want to make sure that you're doing okay.
0: While we're on the topic of stigma, let me see how I want to phrase this. You guys brought up the idea before we started recording that. Some people come in hoping or expecting to be labeled with one of these hormonally-related mood disorders because they they don't want to be labeled with a psychiatric disorder. What would your message be to those people or people who have those kinds of concerns that haven't maybe made it all the way into a clinic?
2: So I, I think my first message is that mental health issues, psychiatric illnesses are extremely common and that it's incredibly important to get them treated, not only for your own personal life and your interactions with other people, but you can make an argument from a medical perspective. So if if you take two people with the same level of cancer, let's say, and one has major depression, the other one doesn't, the person with major depression will have twice the rate of dying from the cancer than the person without major depression. And they're more likely to have other complications and to be functionally impaired. And we think that's because there There are effects on the immune system, the HPA axis, and all of that affects other medical illnesses in the body. If you have diabetes and you're depressed, your blood sugar is under less control. It's the same with asthma. So this is really a health condition that when it is identified and treated can help improve overall health status. So I think that's, that's one thing. The other is, I think the stigma about psychiatric illness is long overdue to be gotten rid of. I talk to people about, this is like any other illness. It's like having diabetes or hypertension, and it's important that you get treated. And you'll feel so much better, and won't that be great? Mm
3: -hmm. One of the things that I emphasize when I talk to patients about this is that It doesn't even really matter what we call it, you and I here together in the office. What matters is that you're suffering, and I have some treatments that I know are going to be really helpful to you. So whether your symptoms are coming about because you're particularly sensitive to hormonal fluctuations or for some other reason, that doesn't really matter. What matters in the end is that we know how to treat it. And so if the patient is more comfortable not naming that illness for the time being... I let it go. I say, let's let's talk about what you're suffering and how I can help that. And I think over time, when patients see how much psychiatric treatments can help the illnesses that they're suffering with, most people do come around to realizing that, hey, yes, I do have a mental illness, and I'm getting better, and that's okay. I
2: want to say one other thing. I think... Most people in the general population don't realize how many somatic symptoms can arise from depression and anxiety disorders. I mean, one of the things as a psychiatrist when I'm taking a history is I ask, when you were a child, did you have a lot of stomach aches or or headaches or have trouble going to school because of physical symptoms? And that's classic for the onset of a mood or anxiety disorder in childhood. The reality is the human brain is amazing and, and can generate all kinds of experiences pain syndromes, um, irritable bowel, migraines, etc. And those can all be symptoms of depression and treating the underlying depression can lead to resolution of those
3: somatic symptoms. Yeah, In fact, even in some cultures, people who are experiencing depression don't experience any of the things that we typically think of as depression, sadness, anhedonia, things like that, but experience almost completely somatic symptoms because of the way their culture understands and interprets these things.
1: Wow, that's really fascinating. I've also heard of some research that shows that people's experience of schizophrenia is shaped on which country they're living in and the types of hallucinations that they have. And it's a very interesting question of how much our culture can actually shape our mental and also physical experience.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And to to go back to the premenstrual dysphoric disorder and and PMS, rates of reported premenstrual mood symptoms vary by country. And a lot of that has to do with cultural expectation. Mm -hmm. I think in the US, there is an expectation that most women get moody before their period. And lo and behold, I think most women have that experience. But there are Mm -hmm. other cultures where maybe they're experiencing it, but they certainly don't admit that or they don't complain about it.
3: And I think there are other things besides culture that can also affect that. One of the things we know is a huge risk factor for having premenstrual symptoms is having a prior history of sexual trauma Mm -hmm. or early life adversity. So that can increase your risk of having premenstrual symptoms. Mm -hmm. And that's actually true. History of trauma is actually true across all psychiatric illnesses. Having experienced early life adversity Mm or some kind of trauma, shapes not only whether you will have psychiatric illness, but how you experience that.
1: So it's clear that these mental health disorders are real physical disorders, and they have treatments that have biological mechanisms at work. Is there anything else that can be done in terms of general health maintenance or activity and social life that can help people cope with or minimize the risk of having these types of disorders?
2: Sure. So almost anything that's healthy and relaxing can be helpful. So exercise, acupuncture, yoga, psychotherapy, and eating a healthy diet it's all very helpful in terms of, we, for instance, there's some really interesting data that's come out more recently that exercise can absolutely reduce the symptoms of depression and anxiety disorders. So like it or not, not eating donuts is probably a good thing in terms of your psychiatric illness. You had to bring um, donuts in this? I know, this. I know. But, you know, eating healthily Exercising and doing things that reduce stress and relax you are all protective for your brain essentially and protect against psychiatric
0: illness. It sounds like the theme of general health promotion that has echoed through other mental illnesses is going to ring true in these cases as well. I mean, we did talk about how birth control could be the major way of addressing the specific health maintenance angle.
3: There's also some evidence for vitamins, minerals, and herbs, alternative treatments that can be helpful, particularly calcium. So there's evidence that, that taking calciums, I think the data was for 600 milligrams twice a day, can help premenstrual symptoms. There's also some evidence, although it's not that strong for certain herbs, particularly chasteberry, oh. as possibly helping both premenstrual and perimenopausal mood symptoms. So for people whose symptoms aren't at so severe that they need a psychopharmacologic treatment, those are things to try out first, along with lifestyle modifications like exercise, for which there's very strong evidence for premenstrual symptoms, psychotherapy, particularly cognitive behavioral therapy.
2: And for premenstrual symptoms, getting rid of caffeine actually can be very helpful. Mm -hmm. So again, all these kind of healthy, normal life behaviors that promote health
1: can be helpful.
0: Hmm. I'm sure there's a listener somewhere with a donut and a coffee in front of them who's very upset <laughs> That right would now. be no.
1: <laughs> As a follow-up question, often, especially with depression, the behavior changes that will most help are very difficult. They're difficult for anyone to make. So for people who are struggling, and especially in today's world, it seems that we want we're used to having everything immediately we want a quick fix and we want to see results how quickly if it's even possible to say could people see some results from these behavior changes that will really help them
2: So that's a great question, and the answer is we don't really have the evidence one way or the other on that. I would certainly say that if someone is suffering from a major depressive episode, that they should absolutely get psychotherapy and psychiatric care, and then as they start to feel better from that kind of focused care they can start to institute other life changes like exercise that can be helpful overall and then can help maintain their wellness once they are better.
3: I I completely agree. I think incorporating a a new and rigorous exercise program when you are severely depressed is going to be something impossible for most people to achieve. I also think, and this is something I, I talk with my patients about, there was an article I read in the New York Times this week about how to form healthy habits and how difficult it is, I think the number they cited was that the average number of times you have to repeat a habit for it to really take hold is 66 times. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot, right? And one of the things that we talk a lot with patients about is that if you want to incorporate a new habit, a new healthy lifestyle habit into your life to tie it to something that's already a habit. So for example, if you get up to get water from the water cooler six times a day, and you feel like you need to be walking more, incorporate a walk around the block into every time you get up to get water, and that will be something that you can add in. So helping patients to understand that you don't have to suddenly adopt a habit of spending two hours at the gym every day. You can start with these tiny little increments, add something small on, and then build from there.
2: Yeah, and when people are depressed, I often say, well, why don't you just go for a short walk? And if you get into the habit of going for a short walk every day, eventually, as you feel better, you can do more, and it will feel better to, to do more. The other trick, actually, is to combine a habit that you want to incorporate with something you really enjoy. So, for instance, I'm really enjoying listening to audiobooks. And so when I go to the gym, I listen to my audiobook and it's extra time that I get to to listen to my book. And that makes it really easy for me to go to the gym because I enjoy my time.
0: Yeah, that makes sense and it's good to have these themes carrying through a, a lot of the different mental health problems that we have discussed. Do you guys have any tools or web resources or or books that you would refer people to?
2: There are a huge number of resources out there. So if a woman is experiencing postpartum depression, there are about 15 books, many of of which were written by superstars. And I don't really think it matters which one you pick. It's really more about educating yourself and recognizing that you're not the only person who's undergoing this. There are a million apps that you can use to track your period, that doesn't necessarily educate you about the, the mood symptoms, but you can track your period and track your mood symptoms, and that may help you recognize whether you're having a pattern or not. There are tons of apps that help people with cognitive behavioral therapy and changing behaviors, etc. So I can't give you a specific one, but
3: I can just say, you know, go for it because there's a lot out there.
0: Yeah,
3: Gotcha. And, and a couple of things that in addition to that, that I would mention are if women are looking for education about these disorders, about the science of them or about the treatment of them, uh, Massachusetts General mm-hmm. Hospital has a center for women's mental health that has an outstanding website that's addressed both to patients and to practitioners to really educate about women's mental health. So that's something I would definitely recommend that people take a look at. If we're talking about postpartum symptoms as opposed to the premenstrual things that we've more talking about here, there's a wonderful organization called Postpartum Support International, which has education for patients and has a branch in every state so those are some resources that people could reach out to. I'll I'll just add one
2: more thing about PSI, Postpartum Support International. They actually have started a national telephone line where providers can call and speak to an expert in women's mental health and get input on cases that they're having trouble figuring out what to do. So either during pregnancy or postpartum, um, it's a great resource for providers as well as for patients.
1: For those of of our listeners who are wondering about postpartum depression, we have a great episode on it actually earlier in this season with uh, Dr. (laughs) Payne. So you can feel free to check that out on our podcast too.
0: We want to make sure that our listeners walk away with useful points to carry with them. What are the three things that you guys would like our listeners to understand about this topic?
3: Well, I think the first one that we agreed on is for everybody to understand that women who have symptoms that are related to reproductive hormonal change, so with the premenstrual period or in the perimenopause or in the postpartum, that those women do not have abnormal hormone levels. Their levels are the same as those of other people, but what they have is a different differential sensitivity, a different vulnerability to what our normal physiologic changes.
2: I think a second point is that there are normal mood changes that can occur at times of hormonal change, but what differentiates those normal changes from psychiatric illness is functional impairment, and that can look different in different patients, but it's really when symptoms are getting in your way of doing what you normally do or enjoying what you normally enjoy that what was a symptom becomes a psychiatric
3: illness. Third important point that we talked about was for people to understand that it is actually important to make distinctions among the different premenstrual mood syndromes that women can have. So there are three mood syndromes. There's premenstrual syndrome, which affects possibly as many as 80% of women. And those are mild, either physical or emotional symptoms that affect most women, but don't include functional impairment. There's premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is something like 3 to 5% of the population, a very small number, but is severely impairing, really prevents people from going about what they are their usual business. Um, and then there's premenstrual exacerbation of an underlying mood disorder where a woman has a perhaps undetected or undertreated mood disorder that is getting worse in the premenstrual period. And the reason it's important to understand those differences and for a woman to see a doctor and be evaluated for those differences is that those things are treated in different ways. I think one final point is that
2: uh, many women have a vulnerability to times of hormonal change, but if a woman is having functional impairment, it's important to recognize that there is a psychiatric illness that can be treated and that that psychiatric illness needs to be treated just like any other medical illness that a woman can experience like diabetes or hypertension and that getting treatment really improves not only her life and, you know, those around her but can improve her medical
3: outcomes over the long run. And I'll just tag on to that to say that even if those symptoms are coming about as a result of this vulnerability to hormonal fluctuation, the treatment for them may be a psychiatric medication. And it's important for women not to be ashamed or embarrassed by that. It's something that happens to a lot of women. And if the treatment can help you, let's go for it. Right.
0: If you'll humor me, I have one capstone question that I think will kind of tie things together. So suppose someone comes in, I know you guys don't normally see uh, Adolescents, but suppose that an 11 year old walks into your office and says, Hey, I'm 11 years old and female, and I have like every possible risk factor for mood disorders. At what point should they be paying more attention to whether they've developed these things and whether they need intervention?
2: When they develop symptoms, okay. um, <laughs> and, and when they get functionally impaired, um, okay. you know I would love to have every 11 year old who's at risk of developing a mood disorder to be able to recognize that. Uh, you know, I treat a lot of parents. Many parents are reluctant to talk to their children about their mood disorder and about getting treatment, and I always encourage them to do that because what you want to do as a parent is educate your child and prepare them in case something happens if, if you have. Have diabetes and your child's at risk, you're going to educate them about diabetes. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same thing with a mood disorder. So let's hope that there is a day where every 11-year-old recognizes whether they're at risk for a major depression or a bipolar disorder or not.
3: Yeah. And again, in adolescence, mm-hmm. it's that same question of functional impairment, right? People think of adolescence as being a, a moody time, a time of lots of change. And how do you tell the difference between normal adolescence and a mood disorder Back to that question of functional impairment. That's what does it.
0: Okay. Well, thank you all for taking the time to come in, for answering all of our questions about how we can better inform women about these risks.
2: Thanks for having us. Mm -hmm. Yes, It was a pleasure.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Yes, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We hope you learned something useful about mental health and that some of you have an easier time because of it. We'd love to hear from you. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or send us an email at disease at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode, where Jennifer Payne returns with her daughter Amanda to discuss the personal side of mental health and the stigma around people with mental health concerns.